HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Appeal. Appeal is a plant-based protective layer that helps produce last up to twice as long. Learn more at appeal.com. Is New York City a ghost town? It is spooky season, and a lot of people want to push the narrative that the city is deserted, or that what's left is even scarier. But anyone who lives in New York knows that's simply not true. NYC is anything but a ghost town. In the past three months, New Yorkers have taken to the streets, sick of being cooped up for several harrowing months. Walking through Central Park or over the Williamsburg Bridge, everywhere I go, I see a bustling city. The outdoor dining program has brought a brand new vibrancy to New York. If it weren't for the prevalence of masks, you really wouldn't know there was a crisis going on. And I can't stress this enough. Keep wearing those masks so we can keep New York thriving. That was lifelong New Yorker and HRN intern Armin Spingen. It's October, and whether or not you believe in spirits and ghosts, goblins and ghouls, there's a unique magic in the air. The leaves are changing, horror movies are on cable, and the entire world seems shrouded in pumpkin spice. This week, we're celebrating the spirit of Halloween with four stories about the odd, occult, and taboo in the world of food. We'll dive headfirst into real-life brain-eating with an organ meat expert. Then we'll learn about the New York rat infestation spurred by COVID-19. We'll explore the mysterious world of ghost kitchens and travel back in time to uncover what might have been the real culprit behind the Salem witch trials. I'm Kat Johnson, and this is Meat and Three. Ever wonder why zombies eat brains? Emily Kunkel ventures into the world of organ meat, also known as offal, to answer just that. One quick note before she dives in, there's a debate in the food world about the pronunciation of offal. While you may have heard it pronounced awful, we're going to veer away from that pronunciation because frankly, offal is anything but awful. They're coming to get you, Barbara. Stop it! You're ignorant! They're coming for you, Barbara. Stop it! You're acting like a child! They're coming for you! Look! There comes one of them now! Night of the Living Dead is a classic, a game-changer. 
And 50 years later, its influence is still felt throughout pop culture. In fact, the modern interpretation of the zombie was born in this 1968 film. It was later in the film's sequel, Return of the Living Dead, that zombies were first seen chomping down on some yummy frontal lobe. Both the film's sizable fandom and the writer-slash-director of the sequel has suggested that this brain-eating penchant stems from the high levels of vitamins and serotonin found in organs. Michael Harlan Turkel, the co-author of Awful Good, Cooking from the Hearts with Guts, is here to tell us how much of that theory really tracks. Brain is delicious. Um, it's custardy, it's soft when cooked properly, but it is also very full of cholesterol. It is not the most nutritious organ meat there is. And I, I get the quip and phrase, you know, uh, zombies wanting to eat more brains, but in the wild, uh, animals, and us included, will go for organ meat first because of how nutrient-dense it is. Eating organs isn't just limited to the living dead. It only takes a quick Google search to see that America's relationship to Ophel was alive and well prior to World War II. Prior to that, only a few generations removed, we were an organ-eating country. Um, not just because we were a country with cultures from Eastern Europe, as well as other parts of the world that, well, I hate to say it, weren't scared to eat organ meat, but that was primarily what the diet consisted of. Organ meat is quite nutritious. According to Michael, our modern aversion to organ meat comes from a simple lack of representation. Once restaurants stopped serving organs, people had less desire to cook them in their homes. And slowly these recipes fell out of the average American's cooking repertoire. When this all flipped, you know, nearly 70 years ago, we moved away from organ meat because uh, the U.S. was in a, in a state where people could afford better meat. On top of that, processing plants started making worse meat. So there was this weird catch-22 happening that it was almost a, a celebration to move away from the organ meat or try something different. But then U.S. agricultural practices became worse and worse to accommodate for this rise in the want and need for skeletal meat. So then that meat started turning to shit. And we started thinking of organ meat in a very off-putting light. But at the same time, it's always existed. There are a lot of cultures in the U.S. and certainly around the world that primarily eat organ meat. Even so, offal can still be found all around us. We just need to look in the right places. Skin is one of those things that if you ever had pork rinds or chicharrones, um, you've already had organ meat. If you've ever had a hot dog or a sausage, a lot of those casings are made of skin. Um, though some are synthetic, so you've already had organ meat. If you've ever had charcuterie, um, you've already had organ meat. Salumi, you've already likely had organ meat. So it's not about reintroducing it. It's been there this whole time. It's just been covered up and um, hasn't been highlighted in the way that it was in the past. As the world faces new resource strains and environmental changes, it might be time to give Ophel more credit. The viability of organ meat as a staple food could be the key to decreasing the meat industry's waste, and more so, limiting the number of animals raised for slaughter. Who knows? Maybe zombies are the eco-warriors we never knew we needed. Have the streets of your hometown been overrun with vermin? 
In our next segment, Anna Oak speaks with someone who can explain this spooky phenomenon. As you walk around New York City these days, you're likely to notice a surprising smell wafting down the street. It's not the rancid flora of the garbage heap. It's not the sulfurous bouquet coming up through the sewer grate. It's freshly cooked food that people are enjoying on hundreds of city streets thanks to New York's outdoor dining program introduced in June. According to Dr. Bobby Corrigan, an urban rodentologist and rodent consultant based out of Westchester, humans are not the only creatures noticing this new fragrance. The rats in the sewers are now smelling, all of a sudden, fresh food molecules. And those rats were like, holy cow, follow that scent. So up out of the catch basins, what do they do? They're like, I don't know what's going on, but something smells delicious here. Dr. Corrigan's knowledge of rats goes back to his PhD research in Indiana. In graduate school, my mentor said the best way to learn about animals such as bats and attics and rats in barns and so forth is to live with them for some time and, and just try to sit back and observe, almost like uh, Henry David Thoreau on Walden Pond. Instead of Walden Pond, I, I, it was like rat barns. And so I moved in um, with rats and just simply stayed with them for a couple of weeks off and on here and there. I went to sleep when they went to sleep. I was up when they were up. And I just kind of sat back and um, observed and took lots and lots of notes. He's continued to observe them in New York for the past 18 years. Here, despite some cultural differences from their Midwestern cousins, the rats are still rats. It's the same species, but it's just like us. You know, people that may live, say, in Las Vegas, same as us, but they live in Las Vegas, so they have a slightly different lifestyle. In New York City, the typical two-hour foraging patterns of rats tend to align with the closing hours of nearby bars and restaurants. That schedule was disrupted during the COVID lockdown earlier in the year. And so the rats pretty much went into shock. I'm anthropomorphizing here a little bit, but it's the third night in a row, and where is dinner? Where is breakfast? It's what is going on here? And, you know, they have a very short physiological tolerance for uh, hunger. And so that's where those rats started becoming aggressive, but not aggressive on people, but aggressive in trying to get to things and aggressive on each other. With the reopening of restaurants and especially the outdoor dining program, rats have returned in force. Rodent celebrities like Pizza Rat may seem cute, but they do represent a public health concern. Rats have been shown to carry 55 different pathogens, including coronaviruses, though not the one that causes COVID-19. They also have a tendency to gnaw through electrical wires, creating sparks and occasionally burning down buildings. So, you know, rodents do not belong with us in these cities as far as, you know, they're kleptoparasites which means they steal from us. They steal our health, they steal our comfort, they steal our safety, they steal our food. Dr. Corrigan advocates a holistic approach to dealing with rats. Extermination alone won't get to the root of the problem. Cities need better waste management on a municipal level, but residents can also help. What grade would you give yourself when you go home and you look at how you put out trash, and after you put it out, you should ask, can rats get to what I just put out? If the answer is maybe, that's not good enough. In any case, while Halloween may look a little different this year, one thing is for certain. We humans won't be the only ones out foraging for food. We'll be right back with more Meat in 3. This episode is brought to you by Appeal. 
Here at HRN, we care about reducing waste across our food system, from farms to home kitchens. We know that about half of the produce we grow ends up in the trash. We all want to enjoy produce at peak freshness and reduce the amount that gets thrown away. That's where Appeal comes in. Appeal is a plant-based protective layer that helps produce last up to twice as long. It's edible, invisible, and imitates how peels naturally protect fruits and vegetables. Because here's the thing, less waste doesn't just mean we're throwing less food away. It also means we waste less water, energy, and other resources that go into growing produce. Appeal works with nature to reduce waste across the food system from the farm to the kitchen. Appeal helps us conserve our precious resources to ensure we have fresh food to meet our growing need. Appeal, food gone good. Learn more at appeal.com. Welcome back to Meat and Three. Next up, we bring you a new kind of ghost story. They're not kitchens filled with apparitions. They're empty restaurants that only really exist on your smartphone. Ryder Bell covers the growth of ghost kitchens and what they spell for the future of restaurants. There are restaurants with no storefront shrunken down into hundreds of square feet versus thousands of square feet. No servers, no hosts, nobody taking your order, maybe one or two cooks in the back making orders from a tablet. Matt Newberg, founder of Hungry. The new media platform that's examining the way technology is shaping the way we eat. Just described ghost kitchens. Also called virtual, cloud, shadow, or dark kitchens, they're essentially the antithesis of fine dining. They focus heavily on efficiency and convenience, and are often housed in warehouses with multiple shared kitchens, dozens of tenants, sometimes offering over 100 concepts. They're delivery only, serving you instant gratification with plastic cutlery. The investment flowing into ghost kitchens is reminiscent of disruptive companies like Uber or Netflix. It is yet to be seen if traditional restaurants today are tomorrow's taxis and blockbusters, but the emergence of ghost kitchens could be a harbinger for even more tech-dependent food consumption. Matt has followed ghost kitchens since noticing their emergence in India and China over the past few years. In the U.S., he credits the newfound hype of ghost kitchens to when former Uber CEO Travis Kalanick acquired a controlling interest in city storage systems in 2018. City Storage Systems is the parent of Cloud Kitchens, a ghost kitchen real estate company whose tenant relationship and business model draws some ominous comparisons. Think of it like Amazon, right? So you're a seller on Amazon. Amazon's a platform. They take the cut of your sales. They own a lot of data. They have you know, pretty much a bird's eye view into every single seller on the marketplace. If you're selling a widget, they decide that they want to get into that business line because it's you know lucrative and they've seen how it's flying like hotcakes off their platform. They stand up their own brand and put it as number one in front of yours. In a report this month, the Wall Street Journal detailed that Cloud Kitchens has spent $130 million to acquire 40 warehouses and commercial properties across the country that they plan to fit out with kitchens and fill with tenants. Like many trailblazing startups, the company has raised to carve out the largest possible share of the market in the least amount of time. Their initial growth included some inventive marketing tactics. The early customers of these ghost kitchen concepts or virtual brands were, you know, college students at USC, 
who were kind of right within the earshot of, of the first Cloud Kitchens location. Cloud Kitchens was basically um, messing with them by creating brands that they knew they, they would buy, like naming a restaurant on Postmates after your fraternity. If you're a kid growing up in 2019 and you see that shit on Postmates, you're going to click into it and they're going to name a sandwich after you. <laughs> and then you're going to keep buying it. Beyond just these consumer marketing strategies, it becomes even spookier. The company also pursued restaurants to join their platform from their own kitchen through some of what Matt calls Jedi mind tricks. The worst things I've seen them do is they create like this thing called Future Foods, which is basically a virtual brand agency that calls mom and pop restaurants and gets them on these tablets that steal their data and tell them that they'll get $3,000 a week in extra revenue because they'll convert their ethnic restaurant into something that's like keto friendly, that has like sexy pictures that they shot somewhere in LA. So restaurants are fulfilling orders for made up virtual brands that they have no affiliation with. Found by customers through a delivery app, with photos of menu items that look nothing like the food they're going to receive. Despite their vast footprint and deep pockets, Matt posits that Cloud Kitchen's zealous expansion strategy may not reap the rewards they envision. Their financial success depends on bundling orders together for large groups of people, rather than fulfilling single orders. Matt sees a lot of eggs being broken before the sector as a whole can devise a sustainable economic model. I don't think it's going to be easy for them. I mean, consumers are waking up to where their food has come from. The jury's still out on what we're comfortable with. There's been very few successful case studies of, of things that have actually succeeded in these kitchens. I think I've become less bullish on the potential success of cloud kitchens. I think it's going to take them a while to find their way. The wild west of ghost kitchens is emblematic of a shift in how we consume food. Last year... Meetin 3 reported on ghost kitchens during the infancy of their ascent. Since then, delivery has become omnipresent, and shortfalls in the traditional restaurant model have been exacerbated by the COVID-19 pandemic. Now, ghost kitchens and ghost kitchen companies are taking advantage through a barrage of faceless brands and options for consumers. I would say it's the illusion of choice. We think that we have this wide array of 120 concepts that we could get in you know, 15 to 30 minutes. But the reality is that it's a very small handful of people controlling the system. And um, I, I only see it becoming more consolidated over time because it's uh, really hard to get the rates you need with the delivery companies and to get the rates you need with your supply chain to make all this jujitsu work. So what does this tell us about the future of the restaurant industry? I see a very stark landscape going forward. Uh, and I think... People have predicted this before COVID, um, and that is that you have kind of restaurants that exist purely for convenience, so that's delivery, and then you have restaurants that purely exist for experience. This sentiment has been expressed before by chefs like David Chang, who has launched delivery-only concepts that ultimately failed. The foreseen erosion of the industry's middle market ultimately suggests the unsustainability of independent mom-and-pop restaurants. Something's got to give. So either they get their rents down, they get rid of a bunch of staff, they really cost their menu out. Because you can't do it with the existing overhead. You can't do it with your existing utilities, your rent, and labor that you had all these other assumptions built in, right? To get that to work is really tough. 
Independent restaurants finding ways to get their food in the hands of those who love them the most is imperative to their survival. According to Matt, this may mean building out their own delivery service or creating designated pickup locations closer to large congregations of customers. Just like any business, restaurants' ability to innovate and adapt to the times will determine their success. You can listen to episode 50 of Meat and 3 to learn more about ghost kitchens. To hear, read, and watch more from Matt on other developments at the Nexus of Food and Technology, you can visit his website at hngry.tv. Find his website link in our show notes. In our final story this week, Tosh Kimmel goes back in time to 1692 to explore what may have been behind the infamous Salem witch trials. The story begins in the village of Salem, Massachusetts, in February of 1692. That spring had been rainy and warm, the summer hot and stormy, but no one could have known that the winter would be one of the darkest in American history. It all began when the daughter of the local minister, nine-year-old Betty Harris, and her cousin Abigail Williams began displaying odd and disturbing behavior. Uncontrollable screaming fits, convulsions, hallucinations, and complaints of being pinched and pricked by an unknown culprit were just some of their symptoms. To a 17th century Puritan community, deeply steeped in religious superstition, there was only one possible culprit, witchcraft. That winter, Salem was overtaken by an over-year-long crusade that claimed the lives of 25 alleged witches. Though centuries have passed, the witch trials continue to capture the imagination of psychologists, artists, scientists, and writers alike. While the Puritans of the Northeast were quick to blame the occult, one modern theory points to a much more inconspicuous offender, moldy bread. We've all seen those fuzzy grayish-blue patches growing on forgotten loaves of bread, but could this everyday mold really have been the impetus of one of the most haunting moments in American history? Well, not exactly. As the scientist behind the theory, Linda R. Caporeal, explained in her 1976 paper, the mold was called ergot, a specific fungus which only grows on rye and only in very specific conditions. And as a winter staple, rye would have been plentiful in Salem. The warm, damp weather that spring provided the perfect conditions for ergot to thrive, as it lay in storage waiting to bewitch the village. Unlike normal bread mold, Ergot contains a psychoactive compound called lysergic acid, a chemical used in the synthesis of LSD, which when ingested can cause convulsions, muscle spasms, hallucinations, and crawling sensations under the skin, much like the symptoms experienced by Betty and Abigail. Although ergot provides a more scientific explanation for the girl's erratic behavior, many theorists believe the witch trials were a byproduct of more than just rotten rye. The village was deeply divided, Tensions between neighbors were simmering and family feuds were frequent. As such, it's not a surprise that the first three accused quote-unquote witches consisted of a slave, a divorcee who rarely attended church, and a destitute woman who challenged Salem's Puritan leadership. Three women with low social standing who had already been ostracized from their community. Perhaps the scariest part of this story is not the idea that the devil tormented an unwitting village, but that the villagers themselves, overcome with fear, became their own tormentors. It could be said that fear itself is the ultimate evil in this story. 
The tumultuous social and political landscape of the village have led some to believe the entire episode was a case of mass hysteria caused by stress. But whether or not you believe Ergot was giving the girls a bad trip, or it was just teen angst, it's clear that Salem was plagued by many things, but it's safe to assume witches were not one of them. That's our show. Thanks for listening. A special shout out this week to Emily Kunkel, Ryder Bell, Anna Oaks, and Tosh Kimmel. Meet in Three is produced by Hannah Forden, Matt Patterson, Katie Mosman-Wadler, Dylan Hoyer, and me, Kat Johnson. Our audio engineer is Matt Patterson. Our theme song was composed by Breakmaster Cylinder. This program is supported in part by public funds from the New York City Department of Cultural Affairs in partnership with the City Council. Meet in Three is powered by Simplecast. Meet in Three is a production of Heritage Radio Network, the world's pioneer food radio station. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org and follow us at heritage underscore radio. And please stay in touch. Whether you have a story idea or just want to say hi, write us at ideas at meetand3.nyc. That's all spelled out.